Good morning. My name is Dave Heinrichs, and I'm one of the pastors here. It's so good to be with you here this morning, whether you're here with us in person or joining us online. I'm just so grateful to be able to be together with the church. And Mindy, thank you for the opportunity that New Hope gives us to be able to participate with you in God's work uh, in that way. I'm just so grateful for organizations like New Hope and Tear Fund uh, who help us to do the work that God has called the church to do that we, we sometimes find it difficult to do, but we can partner together and then we can continue to be the hands and feet that God is calling us to do uh, by joining together with others so that we can do that. And I praise God for that. Well, in 1986, the World's Fair came to Vancouver. Anybody remember that? 86? Yeah, 86. Expo, why is there laughing about that? I don't understand, right? Is because we're so old, some of us? I don't know. Yeah, but 1986, Expo 86 was an attraction that drew thousands from around the world to Vancouver, including many celebrities and dignitaries, world leaders such as Margaret Thatcher, Prince Charles, Princess Diana. They attended Expo 86. But no one made an impression on my wife, Andrea, who attended Expo with her family as much as then Vice President of the United States, George Bush. As a six-year-old, Andrea, she was waiting patiently with her family in line for hours to enter the various Expo pavilions. And during one of these long waits, all of a sudden, everything came to a halt. The line stopped moving, a hush came over the crowd as a man escorted by many other men, all dressed in, you know, suits, wearing glasses, sunglasses, was marched right into the entry of the very pavilion that Andrea and her family were waiting to get in. Now, while others spoke excitedly about this guest, this very important person, six-year-old Andrea was distressed that their wait would now be extended even longer as no one was allowed to enter the pavilion while the vice president had his look around. Certainly, the organizers of Expo, uh, they were pleased to have Bush attend their event, and certainly many other fair visitors at the time were happy to wait in line just a little bit longer in exchange for having someone of such prestige, you know, be welcomed and received into our fair city. But for a six-year-old whose wait already felt like an eternity, this man's arrival wasn't an honor. It was an imposition and in Luke 19, the passage that we are looking at this morning, we see the arrival of another dignitary. But unlike princes or prime ministers or even vice presidents who arrive with stately pomp and ceremony in motor motorcades surrounded by guards or secret service, exuding the, the power of their nation's brute military prowess, this dignitary, he comes in a way that seems rather, well undignified, lowly, riding on a donkey. And as we'll see, this VIP's arrival also elicits a variety of responses, right? Of course, the person I'm speaking of is Jesus and his arrival in Jerusalem at the very beginning of Holy Week, the day that we celebrate today called Palm Sunday or the Triumphal Entry. And some are pleased to receive him, 
Some are excited about the potential prestige that he will bring, and yet others, they do not see his coming as an honor. Rather, they see it as an imposition. But how one receives him is of utmost importance, not just for Israelites 2,000 years ago, but also for us today. This passage should cause us to consider, how will we receive Jesus? Will you welcome the King of Peace? Let's turn in our Bibles to Luke 19. We're going to be reading from verses 28 to 44. As we move in, let me pray. Father in heaven, we love you so much. We thank you for already for all the, the good things we've experienced this morning in this service. We believe that it pleases your heart, Lord. And I pray right now, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing to you, our God. We love you. Amen. Luke 19, beginning at verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And as he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anybody asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead of went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near to the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Well, at the beginning of this passage, Luke notes how Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. And this is more than just a note about Jesus' travel itinerary. You see, for his followers, Jesus' coming to Jerusalem at this time is a statement. It raised their hopes of the messianic expectations they had concerning him that they would be fulfilled. You see, the Messiah or the Savior was Israel's, that Israel waited for, was the coming king that their scriptures foretold would liberate them. It was God's anointed one who would usher in this golden age, free from corrupt and oppressive rulers, which certainly for them at this time, it meant release from their Roman occupiers. 
But Jesus' claims to be the prophesied king of God's kingdom or God's son could be shrugged off as insignificant as long as he stayed in the countryside, right? As long as he stayed out on the outskirts in the little villages of Israel, but coming to Jerusalem, this was a bold and dangerous statement, and both Jesus and his followers knew it. It would be like a campaign that had national hopes in Canada, organizing events and rallies here in the Tri-Cities. It's not that, you know, we aren't important here, but, you know, if you want to be seen as a national movement, you have got to make your moves in Ottawa, not in Coquitlam. And so Jesus' coming to Jerusalem at this point is him bringing his campaign to the capital. It's the coronation of the king of peace over his kingdom. But even leading up to this moment, we see that Jesus and his followers, they had very different understandings of both his movement and this moment. Jesus and his followers had very different understandings of both his movement and this moment. Just before this, we read in Luke chapter 18 that Jesus took the 12 aside. He told them, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him. They will spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. Now, it seems pretty clear to us in hindsight and to Jesus at this time that he was going to Jerusalem to be captured, crushed, and crucified. He was going there to die, right? Yeah, but he was also going to Jerusalem in order to be resurrected, Jesus knows that all of this awaits him in Jerusalem, and from his point of view, it's why this moment can actually be a celebration, why it truly is a triumphal entry and not just a dead man walking to his execution. It's precisely because he is coming to bring God's salvation and peace to the world that Jesus enters Jerusalem as king on this day, to ransom all of humanity from the clutches of sin, death, and the devil, not just Israel, from Roman occupation. For Jesus, this movement he is leading, it's worldwide. It is reinstating God's kingdom reign, thus liberating all of creation from the enemy. And this moment, it is the prelude to the turning point in the whole thing. The triumphal entry of the conquering hero in the height of the battle to win the decisive victory, but not through taking the lives of others, but by giving up his very own. And his disciples, they never understood this until after his resurrection. Just look at how they respond each time Jesus predicts his death and resurrection in the Gospel of Mark. First, in Mark chapter 8, we know the story well. Jesus predicts his death and resurrection, and what does Peter do? He takes him aside and he chastises Jesus. He rebukes him. Then in Mark chapter 9, Jesus again, he tells them about his death and his resurrection. And what do the disciples end up doing? Talking about which one of them is the greatest. 
Then in Mark chapter 10, the third time he tells them about his death and resurrection and that this is coming. And what happens? James and John, they come up to Jesus and they start vying for positions of power and honor in his coming kingdom, right? They start looking for political seats of power, right? James wants to be minister of agriculture. John wants to be minister of transportation, For many of his followers, they understood this movement to be only local and political, about freeing Israel. They believed that this moment was a triumph because finally he is coming to assume his throne, right? Now is the time for revolution. Perhaps now he would openly declare, I am the king, and he would begin to take over. Perhaps he would rally the people into this massive convoy, and they would take the temple and the palace by storm. He comes as a king, but he comes as the king of peace. You see, the passage goes on to describe how Jesus instructs his disciples to go on to the village ahead of them and how they're going to find this colt and how they are to bring it to him. And if anybody asks that they are to say the Lord needs it and everything transpires exactly how Jesus said it would. And I think this encounter... It shows that Jesus is a king like no other king. You see, all kings or royal people, they had the authority to do this. They could go out and they could commandeer a common person's property, such as an animal like this, for their own personal use. Right? Every king or queen or royal person could do that. That was their right. But this scene shows how Jesus is unlike mere mortal kings. He has the authority and insight over how events will unfold in places and spaces, even when he's not there. He tells his disciples what they will find in the town ahead and exactly how people are going to respond. And it happens. It reminds me of the story when Jesus met the disciple Nathaniel. The other gospels call him Bartholomew in John chapter 1. Philip invites Nathanael to come and see Jesus. And when he meets him, Jesus said to him, Oh yeah, I saw you while you were still under that fig tree before Philip came and spoke to you. And upon hearing this, that Jesus has this insight into events when he's not even in the vicinity, Nathanael declares, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Indeed, he is the King of Israel. He's the king of all of creation, and he's the king of peace. You see, this cult that Jesus has them fetch, it's significant. It's not just this mode of transportation, it's a symbol. Imagine the statement that a royal person, a world leader would make when they're coming to their inauguration, rather than being transported in a limousine surrounded by military people, police, they just drive in on their old used economy car, right? Or they they take public transportation. They take the bus. Yeah. (laughs) Shout out to the bus people, right? The contrast between Jesus's entrance on a colt and that of a Roman leader on a procession of war horses is culturally obvious. One displays the dominant military force The other, humble peacemaking. But more than just a symbol, Jesus' entry on this colt fulfills the prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9. 
which says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem, see your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. You see, God's righteousness and victory described here in Zechariah 9, they do not appear as strength or brute power. This king comes lowly riding on a young donkey. You don't go into battle on a donkey. You don't face off with the Roman Empire in order to destroy them riding a colt. You can't fight your way to the throne, destroying all your enemies in your way, and claim your rightful role as the king of Jerusalem if your war horse is Eeyore. (laughs) Just ask Winnie the Pooh. Doesn't work. Yet this passage says that his lowliness will be the very means by which God's kingdom is established. And that all these instruments and the weapons of war, the chariots, the war horses, the bows, they are all done away with, right? And that peace is brought to all nations, not just Israel. This king undoubtedly has ultimate power and authority, but his ride on this lowly animal denotes humility and service. He is the king of peace. Will you welcome him? Now, his followers certainly do in this moment. They spread their cloaks on the animal and they spread them out on the road. It's like they are rolling out the red carpet for royalty. And verse 37 and 38 says that the whole crowd of disciples, they began to joyfully praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven. And glory in the highest. These praises are verses from Psalm 118 that pilgrims, they would often sing as they would make their way into Jerusalem. And Psalm 118, it's a song of victory, a hymn of praise to God who defeats all of his foes and establishes his kingdom. And so when his disciples are singing these verses over him, His followers are declaring that Jesus is the sent king and that he is the one who comes with authority given by God. And this is why in verse 39, it says that some of the Pharisees who are in the crowd, they are indignant, right? They say to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples because they they don't believe it. They don't believe him. Why not? Why can't they see him? Why were so many others able to see that Jesus is the Messiah, but the majority of the religious leaders were unable to do it? It's not like they weren't hanging around him. They were keeping tabs on him. They were there. Whenever he's teaching, you just read the Gospels. He's teaching. He's healing. Who's always there? It's these religious elites. 
They're following him. They're seeing the miracles for themselves. And we, we know that a small handful, they actually did come to believe. Pharisees such as Nicodemus, right? They ended up following him. But so few did. Why? The Gospels indicate that it was because Jesus was a threat to their power, their position, and their profits. He threatened their power, position, and profits. And this caused them to stumble. The religious establishment, they had brokered an uneasy peace deal with the power of Rome so that they could keep this for themselves. In John 11, it says that the chief priests and the Pharisees, they called the meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is a man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was the high priest, then spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it's better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. They did not kill Jesus because he was a threat to Rome. A man riding in on a donkey is no threat to Roman power. They killed Jesus because he was a threat to their security, their comfort, and their control. And this blinded them from recognizing who he was. And sadly, they were the ones who studied the scriptures the most. If anybody should have recognized him, it should have been them. Yet they remained unable to see the hope, the peace, and the real security that he would bring but because it, Jesus is going to ruin everything that they had worked so hard for, it's better that he just die. But you know, Pharisees are not the only people who resort to violence when they feel threatened. Many, many have also brokered peace deals with ways of life, institutions, or philosophies in order to shore up our own security. Oh, they might not be as obviously evil or idolatrous an institution like Rome was, but the results, they're always the same. Reminds me of when I was 30 and I started drinking coffee. My friend Brad was here a couple weeks ago. He loves coffee. I'm not as, you know, idolatrous with my coffee as Brad is, but uh, I do like it. And I remember at the time, my brother, he came to me, he said, listen, Dave, if you're going to start drinking coffee, you should really drink fair trade organic coffee, right? Because uh, it's not only more equitable to the farmers in these poor countries where all the coffee beans come from, but it's more sustainable for the earth. And when I think about how I responded to him at the time, it really saddens me how I, I bristled at that, right? How I was offended at the suggestion that somehow my coffee consumption was unjust, right? About why should I pay more when I work hard for my money and I'm just being frugal. And I don't know about Baptists. I think they're like Mennonites, right? Like frugalness is next to godliness, right? You know, and... and God wants me to be frugal, and who are you to tell me how to spend my money? I'm a pastor, gosh darn it, and let me tell you where you're not living your life right. <sighs> and I know this is a silly example, but I see this kind of thing far too often. You know, someone disagrees with our politics, we go after their character. 
Someone points out an injustice and we scream, cancel culture. Someone mentions climate change is a concern and we tell them to come back and talk to us when they're no longer driving a car, you hypocrite. And often, just like Pharisees, when our privilege is threatened, our security endangered, the temptation for us is to respond violently, even against those who are speaking words of peace. And in verse 40, Jesus responds to these critics. When they demand that he shut his disciples up, he says, I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Not only do Jesus' remarks indicate how appropriate the disciples' praises are, but his remarks that if they don't sing, then the creation will start to. It's pretty astounding. But Jesus is saying something more than just the rocks are going to start singing. Whenever in Scripture it says that creation is speaking, it's always when there is unaddressed injustice. Creation speaks whenever there is unaddressed injustice. So all the way back in Genesis chapter 4, right? Cain kills Abel and God comes to Cain and says, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Or in Habakkuk 2, it says, Woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain. The stones of the walls will cry out and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. If his disciples were not singing his praises, a serious injustice would be taking place here. If they did not proclaim Jesus' authority and the peace that he brings, and Jesus' reply to these Pharisees at this time, it has an inherent rebuke to it. He is saying that the inanimate creation knows more about what is taking place in this moment than they do. And then finally in verses 41 to 44. As he's making his way and he approaches the city and he has it in his sights, he's not jubilant. Jesus isn't riding the wave and the rush of the people's praises. He doesn't have his game face on. He's not prepared to battle it out with religious and Roman leaders alike. What is he doing instead? He's weeping, it says. He saw the city and he wept over it. Why does he weep? I think it's because they've missed a major opportunity. Jesus says, if you, even you, had known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes, how is it that an entire city has missed it? Have they had their eyes shut this whole time? Did they not see because they didn't know what to look for? I think it was because they didn't want this kind of a king. The kind who rides in on a colt instead of a war horse. A king of peace, you see, he brings reconciliation through humility service and sacrifice and he demands that his citizens do the same 
But you see, that's unsettling for a culture that believes it has achieved its own security through palatable compromises or temporary ceasefires while all the time stockpiling for battle. Rather than considering others better than themselves or each of you looking to the interests of others, the people of Jerusalem have adopted the Roman policy that if you want peace, you better prepare for war. And Jesus weeps because he knows that this is a failed strategy. Whenever God's people have put their trust in worldly powers or their own ingenuity, rather than trusting him and his ways, their unfaithfulness, it has always resulted in God's judgment through other nations. We just look at the way it happened to his people with the Assyrians and the Babylonians in the Old Testament. Now Jerusalem's lack of faith will result in this destruction that Jesus predicts here that will unfold, unfold in in 70 AD at the hands of Emperor Titus, where everything that Jesus predicts, it will come to pass, even the destruction of the temple. And this is an important warning for Christians and the church today, too. You see, whenever God's people have tried to be this alternative government in the world or put hopes in some political party or power or some type of national force that should actively, you know, overthrow God's enemies and and restore the church's agenda. This is always shown in history to be a tragic mistake. You see, the church needs to live in light of this image of Jesus that we see here in this passage. Humble, serving, sacrificial. He's the king of peace. I love how in this passage that Jesus, he's not immune to tears. He weeps here because he loves people. He abhors violence. He hates it. And this is not a moment of weakness or something that a a real Messiah should have avoided. No. Jesus cries because this is a tragedy. He laments. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. They didn't recognize the time of his coming. I think the question for us is will we recognize it? Do we recognize him? Are we ready to welcome a king of peace? As we've seen in this passage, there are several responses to him. First, there are his followers who seem ready to receive him, right? Like they are celebrating with him these shouts of praise. Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. But only a few days later, some will be shouting, crucify him. How do they transition from praise to rage so quickly? I think it's because he didn't fit the image of the conquering king, right? They were disappointed and disillusioned that he wasn't going to fulfill their expectations. But you see, it's not the king's responsibility to fulfill our expectations. He is the king. It's our responsibility to follow through on his commands, to fulfill his expectations. Then there are these Pharisees, those 
religious elites who rejected him because rather than prop them up, he calls them to sacrificial humility and he offended their pride. Oh God, how many times have you offended my pride? Where Jesus, you have called me to sacrificial humility, where I, I'm annoyed because I don't want to. Have mercy. And then finally, there's an entire city that has its eyes closed. Not because they didn't know what to look for, but because they did not want this kind of a king. They don't want a king that requires his subjects to forgive. A king who requires his subjects to let go of old grudges and new grudges alike. To loosen your grips on your perceived rights in order to restore your relationship with your enemies, or maybe even to restore your relationship with your brothers and sisters. They wanted a king that they could follow into war, but war isn't where Jesus is heading, remember? Where is he heading? Calvary. Where is he heading? Calvary, yes. He's heading to a cross. The question for us is, are we ready to welcome a king of peace, because if you are, then he is leading you and I to the very same place. To follow Jesus, we not only need to be willing to spread our cloaks out on the road before him, but to enter his kingdom, then just like the king, we need to take up our cross and we need to die to ourselves. So many people, they fail to follow Jesus because they fail to understand his movement and this moment. They fail to understand his movement and this moment. So pay attention so that we don't miss out. Jesus was inaugurating the coming kingdom of God, calling people to live right now as citizens of that coming kingdom. And this included a call to stop living according to the ways of this world, according to the ways that we think are right for ourselves. Rather than you doing you, Jesus is requiring us to trust and follow him and living according to the pattern that he has set. And at the heart of the Jesus way is sacrificial love for others. Not just family and friends, but even Love for those who consider themselves our enemies. Remember what it said in that last verse of Zechariah 9 that I read. In verse 11, it says, As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. You know, the first time the Bible uses that phrase, the blood of the covenant, it's in Exodus chapter 24. And at that occasion, uh, an animal sacrifice was made on behalf of the people in order to establish their relationship with God in the Old Testament. Only days after this Palm Sunday event that we are celebrating, Jesus, he will celebrate one last meal with his disciples the night before his crucifixion. And he would tell his disciples that it would be his own death that would be the new blood of the covenant. That this new blood of the covenant that would be the thing that establishes our relationship with God. This is the communion supper that we celebrate every month. 
Jesus saw his death as the ultimate atoning sacrifice that would free people from the pit, that would bring peace to the world and establish an everlasting relationship with God and all those who would follow him. He comes to bring peace. And I plead that we would not misunderstand either his movement or this moment. Let's not miss out on this moment. You see, in this moment, you and I, we have the opportunity to welcome Jesus, the King of Peace, whether it's for the first time or for the hundred and first time. And we might be thinking, Dave, I've welcomed Jesus into my heart, into my life. I'm one of the followers. But to welcome him, it means welcoming his ways into our lives. It means rejecting war horses in favor of donkeys. It means pursuing peace in our relationships at home. Peace in our relationships at school or work. It means pursuing peace in our relationships here at church And instead of trying to win your rights in battle, it means serving, it means sacrificing for others, all in humility and love for the king and for them. And I'm sure that if we even just took a moment to pause and to think about, each one of us would have places or spaces in our own lives where we are ready to do battle, but we need the prince of peace, the king of peace to come and to reign in those areas in our lives. Let's take a moment and think about that. Where do we need the king of peace? Where do we need those battle bows broken and to get off our war horses? Jesus was victorious Not because he took the lives of others, but because he gave up his very own. And that's how you and I gain the victory too. Through sacrificial love. He was going to Jerusalem in order to die. But not just to die, right? He was also going to Jerusalem to be resurrected. Oh boy, are we going to talk about that next week? And I can't wait. That is the weekend of all weekends to celebrate, isn't it? I love Easter. I love Resurrection Sunday. And see, that's our hope. New life. Everlasting life. Everlasting life is not just life then. Everlasting life is a quality of life that we are called to embrace and live now. And Jesus said, hey, listen, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for this gospel will save it. Hosanna. 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 Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Welcome Jesus, King Jesus, King of peace.